I'm Dean Newland, and welcome to the Business of Intuition, where I coach, facilitate, train, and speak on the hard science and meaningful experience of intuitive leadership in business, so you can make better decisions, forge real connections, and creatively solve problems to amplify your impact and simplify your life. Welcome to the Business of Intuition. As we enter into the second quarter of 2022, all companies have had at least several conversations about what to do with bringing people back to quote unquote work. Of course, everybody has been working, but do we want to bring them back to the office? Some companies have elected to make it mandatory to bring everybody back because they value having everybody in the same place. Let's bring it back to the way it used to be before the pandemic. Other companies are trying to find some sort of a blended recipe of some people being in part of the week, other people being in the other part of the week, or maybe we open up some sort of hoteling system where you can sign up for space. All of these things are being discussed and all these things are being tried, and we'll see how it works out over the next several months and years. But one thing is true for all companies is that WebEx or Microsoft Teams or Zoom, whatever your video conference preference is, is here to stay. We are now familiar with it, we've been able to play with it, and companies are now going to be using it in ways it never has been before, certainly before COVID. However, what I have found is that even though we have been practicing using video conferencing quite a bit over the last two or three years, we're still pretty sloppy with it. We're still infants in this distinction called video conference communication. And so I thought it would be useful as we are now coming out of COVID into this more blended environment of some people at work, some people still Zooming in from home or other locations that we refresh our understanding about how to make this form of communication the most effective and the most meaningful. So one of my most popular podcast episodes of all time over the last two years was by a guy named Nick Morgan, who is an absolute expert in this field of conversations and creating meaningful relationships over these virtual environments. So I had decided to bring back this particular podcast episode and use it again, given the fact that now we are working in a new world where we're blending both virtual and personal face-to-face. So listen up for Nick Morgan on the business of intuition. So Nick, it's great to have you on the business of intuition. And I was thinking about, you know, how do we lead into this conversation? And I think that the first time I was really aware of one part of communication, which is public speaking, was when I was a kid. And my dad, who was actually a, a really good communicator when it came to writing, he was a reporter for 35 years and won a bunch of awards. And so he was really good with the written word, but public speaking, not so much. And I remember going to a, a Toastmasters meeting where he was giving a speech and he wanted me to come and see him, being the proud father that he was. So he stands up in front of this group of people and he's doing his thing. But he keeps jangling his change in his pocket. Ah. And it keeps, and, it, and that's almost like anything that you could hear was always being my dad just standing up there fidgeting with his coins in his pocket. So afterwards, he pulls me aside and said, How did I do it? I said, Well, I thought it went pretty well, but 
did you realize that you were jangling your, your, your change in your pocket? And he goes, hadn't had no idea. And so he had this blind spot around his, the static he was creating mm-hmm. between he and his audience. And so I guess maybe to lead us into this discussion, do you find in your work that people have certain blind spots around their communication? You know, are there certain patterns that show up that, that you notice over and over again just always seems to happen? Yeah, sure. It's a fun question because uh, I could tell you stories if we have time. One in particular comes to mind, but. Don't do it. Let's do it. Yeah. What's your story? Yeah. So (laughs) what we're talking about here is what your dad had and what virtually everybody has is the, the famous or infamous fight, flight, or freeze response, the adrenaline response to the the scary feeling of standing up in front of other people, feeling like you're exposed, going to be judged. We all, we imagine that it goes back to ancient times when if you were standing up in front of your cave, (laughs) you were either about to be elected chief or being going to be made a ritual sacrifice. And neither one of those things was necessarily good, right? So, so there's that fear of ostracism that comes when we're feel like we might be judged by others. And in ancient times, that was probably a death sentence. You could probably last 48 hours as a weak human in, in, a, in a world full of apex predators. This is what we imagine anyway. So yeah, so that's why we're nervous, presumably. And one of my favorite stories of this is I was working with a, with a client. I can't say the industry because it would give a little too much away, but this person wanted to tell the story of this person's arrival in the United States and a rather heroic rise from nothing to running a giant corporation, a very compelling story. And, and the funny thing was, we were able to write the speech, but this person did not want to rehearse it, hmm. telling me that uh, he, she, it had training of a certain kind in the past, and that training would suffice for a rehearsal. Well, when the moment came, this person started speaking, and in the midst of the speech, two or three sentences in, suddenly started running across the stage and doing ballet moves. And there, <laughs> there happened to be a sofa in the middle of the stage, and he, she, it leaped up on the sofa, did a ballet pirouette, leaped back down, ran back over to the podium, and gave a few more lines from the speech. The whole speech. It was absolutely riveting, but not in a good way. <laughs> it sounds like and, Tom Cruise. <laughs> it was a little Tom Cruise-ish, yes. Yeah. yeah. So this kind of thing comes up when we are driven by those, those feelings of adrenaline into kind of instinctive action. It usually shows up much more commonly in something that we call happy feet, which is pacing around mm. the stage just relentlessly because you've got that extra energy. The adrenaline is making you antsy and you want to get rid of it. And your dad was jiggling his keys is a fairly reasonably subtle way to do that. But of course, it's distracting if it goes on long enough. Yeah. The pacing across the stage within a couple of minutes gets to be irritating for the audience. And so, but that's a much more common one. So what do you do with a person or anybody that is going to give a speech and you know that this nerves component is going to be an issue that... Whether it's your happy feet, whether it's jangling coins in your chain, in your pocket, or, you know, too many odds because you're nervous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you have that fight or flight mode. How do you coach people, consult people to parlay that energy for good versus for distraction? 
Well, you, yeah, that's the important question. You put your finger on, on one of the ways you can do it, which works for some people and not for others, which is to redefine those feelings. Because if you experience that heart rate building excitement, if you define it as something fun is about to happen, it's a feeling you might have, say, when you're about to get on a, an amusement park ride, let's say, mm. right? Same kind of feeling. You might be a little bit scared, but a little bit thrilled too. And on the roller coaster, those, those happy shrieks of terror, you know, people are <laughs> defining that as fun. They're actually paying money to do that. And they're, they'd go back and do it again if they have the time. So the physical symptoms are ambiguous. And if we define them as uncomfortable, then they're going to be unpleasant. If we define them as exciting and fun, then that might change the experience. Now, that doesn't work for everybody. For other people, the, the symptoms are just are alarming enough and upsetting enough that they need to work on calming them down. So for them, we recommend deep breathing. A good thing to do is a few hours before you're going to give the speech, go out and get some gentle exercise. So you're just, you don't want to overdo it. You don't want to run a marathon. You don't want to be exhausted on stage. But if you, if you get rid of some of that energy, so you're a little toned down, then when you get up on stage, you can be a bit calmer. For some people, envisioning success uh, like mm. Olympic athletes do is another way. So there's a whole variety of techniques mm. you can use to increase the likelihood of a positive outcome. And, and when I'm coaching somebody, I just try to find the one that works for them. I remember many years ago, I, I, my background actually on the graduate level was in acting mm. and uh, interesting sort of circuitous route to get to where I am now. But I remember I was always concerned, like most people are, of being on stage and losing your lines. Right. Go going dry. Yeah. Going dry. Like, what? I can't forget it. You know, yeah. to be or not to what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I remember that the, for me at least, it was a challenge of focus. Am I focused on my intention? In this case, the audience or the message or the, mm. the, in the if it was a play, the other person. Mm -hmm. Or am I focused on myself and the words and right. lines and so forth? And invariably, I realized that as soon as I was worried about my lines, which then became about me, I would more apt to go up on them. And I think, yes. that, do you find that to be true with people who are practicing for a speech that if they're thinking about whether or not they remember everything, they actually might forget something? That's right. You program your brain to worry about that. And then the first thing it does, of course, is it forgets the thing you want to remember. Yeah, so the Zen insight here that's extremely helpful, easy to describe, and very hard to achieve <laughs> is that moment of realization when you say, oh, this isn't about me, actually. This is about the audience. Because it doesn't really matter. I could speak to an empty room. If nobody's listening, then there is no message. There is, it hasn't been received. The reception is the important part. The other things are important, too, leading up to that. But the most important thing is the reception. And so if the audience doesn't get it, then it hasn't happened in that sense. Uh, and when you realize that, that can be extraordinarily liberating, but it's very hard to sort of switch that on. That, yeah. That, yeah. that comes with time. It comes to some people just out of sheer luck and excitement, but you, it's not something you can program. So we have a whole series of little exercises that people can go through to make the experience better. And then if you do those well enough and thoroughly enough, then you can usually get through, get over the initial nerves. For most people, it's just the first few minutes of a talk is, is the feeling of real discomfort. And then they get into it and they're okay. Yeah, I noticed that too myself. Hey, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. You know, we've been in this little pandemic for the last eight, 18 months. We were talking before we 
hit the record button about, you know, favorite restaurants in Boston that haven't opened up yet. And, mm. you know, looking forward to that. But a lot of our communication in business has been over things like this, Zoom, WebEx, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I've always heard and read and had experience that it was this sort of communication doesn't have the same level of intimacy if I was sitting in your office right now. And that the very virtuosity of it, it was, was in fact a barrier. Is there something from your perspective that when we are communicating over a video stream like this, that we can, we can get as close to being as intimate as we would in a face-to-face conversation? Uh, interesting. The quick answer is no. There are a series of problems with uh, video that mean that unconsciously, and, and you're all about intuition, so this is at the intuitive level, it's going to be experienced differently. The first and simplest is that normally when you sit across from somebody in an audience, in an office, you're in three dimensions. Here, we're in two dimensions. And we're used to interpreting two dimensions as three. We watch movies, television, we see photographs. So we think that's not a problem. But what actually happens is your face is flattened out. I can't see the three dimensions of it as clearly as I can in person. And so the muscles on your face, which express your emotions and your attitudes and your intent, are coming through not quite as clearly. It's as if you turn the volume down. So that's the first thing. The second thing that happens is even on Zoom, the audio is compressed, just like it is on telephones. They use the same compression, basically. Nobody bothered to invent new, better sound when we moved to <laughs> video conferencing because we needed all the bandwidth for the video, right? So, so the sound is compressed. When you compress a human voice, you cut out the undertones and overtones. And without going too deeply into a kind of a geek fest here about what that means, Basically, the quick answer is it cuts out some of the emotional resonance. And so, again, it's like turning the volume down. I, you don't know how strongly I feel about something, really, in the same way that you would get it if we were sitting face to face across from each other. And then the third thing that makes video tough is the, the sort of oddest one and the one that nobody really thinks about because we don't teach this in school. So we teach our five senses in schools, sight, smell, sound, taste, touch. And there's a sixth sense. And it's arguably more important than the other five. That's proprioception. Hmm. Proprioception is the sense by which we keep track of where we are in space and where the people around us are in space. That's important because we don't wanna bump into the walls. And if you're sleeping with your partner in bed, you may, you may have never asked yourself this question, but you may wonder why it is now that you don't roll over and, and uh, whack them in the face. It's not just because you're a nice person. It's because your proprioception is going 24-7, keeping track of where you are and where the people around you are. And so it's not asleep while you are, and it says, don't roll over and, and uh, punch the person next to you. So that's a good thing. It, more importantly, in a meeting, we monitor very closely where people are in space in relation to us. And so if you get too close to me, if you get into my intimate space, then, and you're only a business acquaintance or somebody I've just met, then that stresses me out because I only typically let intimates into the very close space around me. But proprioception 
is still going, even though I'm looking at you on a TV screen. And on the TV screen or the, the video, uh, you are in my intimate space because you're only a couple of feet away from me. So my uh, body is sending off alarm systems saying, uh, Dean's getting awfully close here. Gee, I wonder if he's as nice guy as he sounds. And, uh, and, but at the same time, you're not the right size because you look like you're further away since you're actually in a little box. And so my proprioception sense says, figure out where this guy is. He looks like he's close, but he's not close. And that stresses me out unconsciously. Mm. So I get a low level of stress response. I can't figure out where you are. And as a result, I find the experience difficult to, to handle. Over that's, what we, that's the real reason. There's a lot to talk about Zoom fatigue. It's become a phrase. But that's the real reason why you get Zoom fatigue is because you're mildly stressed the entire time you're on a Zoom call or any one of the other video conferences. So the question is, what can you do about that? And the, yeah. the answer is you can play with the space a little bit. So uh, one of the things people do and it's a terrible mistake is they'll put their laptop up and then they'll get their face in the, in the screen. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and they think they're being, I don't know, intimate or something, but, or maybe it's just the way the camera falls, but that's not a good thing. That, that just makes our proprioception sense even more alarmed. So it's better to, to go back a little bit without getting too far away because we need to be able to see the other person and see their facial expression. So that helps a little bit to monitor the space, give yourself some space. Is that Another, like if you were to say shoulders, uh, torso and above or elbows and above? I mean, are we talking that we want to see that or, or we want to see knees and, and ankles as well? The key thing is, and watch as I do this, the key thing is uh, you want to be able to see what the other person's hands are doing. Hands mm -hmm. are a key part of our means of expression. And the, one of the constant problems of most Zooms is you're sitting down at a desk, and so I only see your shoulders and head. And it turns out that the basic reason for gesturing is that we gesture on the beat of important words. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out if you cut out gestures, you lose about 20 to 30% of comprehension. Fascinating. And so it's just, yeah, again, we're working harder to understand. So one of the, better, one of the things to do then is to step back a little bit, do at a standing desk like you and I both are, yeah. and, and start using those hands. And, and I train people, they don't like it much, but I train people because I say, if you're sitting at the desk and we're just seeing your head and shoulders, then you're going to have to bring your hands up here and start waving around, you know, and so that I can see them. Because we rely on hands to tell us a surprising amount about what the other person is saying, and more importantly, what their intent is. Fascinating. So I have another question. I heard this from somebody that part of this uh, Zoom fatigue is that we are watching ourself as well as the other person. Like right now, I can see right. me and I can see <laughs> you. Maybe you can as well. Mm -hmm. Then that some people have said, stop looking at yourself to turn off that, that screen if you can. So all you're doing is looking at the other person. And I do notice that because sometimes I do look at myself to say, well, am I is my resting face showing what I'm intending? You know, right. am I smiling? Am I, do I look, does my concentration make me look like I'm upset? You know, I, I so right, I'm right. taking in in a way that I never had before. Right. What's your sense about that? Yeah. When we started the Zoom conferencing and people asked me about that, I said, yeah, it's very strange. It's as if everybody was sitting around face to face in a conference room and they all had those little pocket mirrors and they were sort of looking like this as we were talking. I mean, what a weird thing that would be, right? Yeah. But that's about the size of it. It's just sort of like looking at your makeup mirror or your pocket mirror or something like that. 
And so it's sort of obviously not a good idea because it isn't the natural way that we communicate. That said, you raise a couple of important points. Because the Zoom experience isn't as engaging, our body doesn't really think there's another person there at some Mm -hmm. unconscious level. It isn't the same as having a person. We don't react in the same way. Then your resting face might start to look bored or uninterested or disengaged, and that might send out an unfortunate signal to the other person whom you don't want to affect in that way. And so I actually think if we're going to spend a lot of time on Zoom and hello, what else have we been doing for the last year and a half, then we need to develop that extra muscle of self-awareness so that we know how we're coming across. It is stressful. And, and so I recommend people to help that out by taking frequent breaks and meditating and going for walks in the park whenever they can and so on and so forth. All the mm-hmm. usual health and wellness kinds of things. You have to take those seriously if you're going to be locked in a room doing nothing but video conferencing all day long. So a lot of organizations right now are coming back to work, (laughs) which is an interesting phrase, as if we weren't at work before. But what they're trying to convey is we want to bring people back to physical interaction. And then there is some of them are mandating it. Some of them are doing some sort of a blended approach where we've got, you know, rotating, you have Tuesdays and Thursdays and other people Mm -hmm. come in and we have shared space and it's completely changing the way in which people are working. And in organizations that we're talking to, they're now developing protocols for how we have live meetings with people also coming in through virtual platforms like Zoom. Right. So now you've got both of these modalities happening at the same time. What's your sense of this? First and foremost, my question is, how do we do this, you know, Mm -hmm. in a way that's most effective? That's Mm -hmm. my first question. Yeah. So the way to do it that's most effective is to, and I've got a very specific instruction here because I did the research on this back in 2017, 2018, when I first thought it was starting to get really interesting. I wrote a book on the subject, and I found to my surprise that only 5% of Fortune 1000 companies were using video conferencing. And the result was that the book didn't sell very well because 95% (laughs) of people weren't doing it. But March 2020, suddenly the book started selling. All right. So the interesting thing was MIT had just done some really good research on what do hybrid meetings look like and how do they affect the participants? And the answer was, it's not good for the people who are virtual. And so what happens is if, and one could easily imagine, let's say, a New York City-based company that brought some of their workers back, and let's say the top executive team and the most, the top people came back first to set a good example or something, right? So they're having face-to-face meetings. The juniors are still out there in the hybrid world, all right? And let's say there's travel going on. And the juniors aren't paid for travel yet, right? So the experience as you go lower down the totem pole is that the um, is that further down you go, the less likely you are to be in person, perhaps, yes. right? Let's just yes. sketch that as a possible scenario. Then what's right. going to happen is those people are going to be discriminated against. Their careers are going to suffer. It's the research shows that clearly. We don't not only the folks who are there, but even the people on the virtual side of the hybrid meeting think that their participation is not as effective, they are not as impressive, 
their attitudes aren't taken into account as much. By every measure, they're less important to that meeting. So here's what you need to do. Here's the way to make it better. And that is, if you're going to have hybrid meetings for every single one, you need to assign an MC, a master of ceremonies, who's going to keep track of that. And somebody who's not, not the boss or the, or the highest level person in the meeting or the person who's running the meeting in terms of the intellectual content, but somebody whose sole job it is to make sure that everybody participates and to say, gee, Jim, we haven't heard from you in a while over there in Dubuque. How are things going? You know, what's your opinion on this? What's your take on this? And to make sure that those kinds of olive branches are extended to the people in the virtual space, because otherwise they're going to get lost and, and their careers will suffer as a result. But should that be the, the leader of that particular team? And in, I guess it's a loaded question because my, uh, let me just come right to my point. Mm. If it's a leader, it almost seems like then that person has to play a kind of a schizophrenic role or the kinds of people that they call out might um, somehow indicate uh, a preference or it's weighted towards the opinion of the leader. I'm wondering whether another person on the team could potentially be better at being the, the MC or could it be rotated? What's your sense of that? Oh, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't express it clearly then if, if you, oh, no, that no, was no. the impression Maybe I, I just got. Yeah. Hear it. Yeah. It's critical that it not be the leader or the person who's in charge of the intellectual oh. content of the meeting, okay. but somebody else. It's just too much to handle if you're thinking about, if you're arguing about the substance. Uh, you want somebody else who is not leading the meeting to be the MC who can keep track of who's participating and who isn't who hasn't been heard from in a while, that kind of thing. And yes, I think because that could potentially become a powerful role, it would be a good idea to rotate it around the other members of the team and maybe even get HR in on the act and have them be the MC or something like that, somebody who's not involved so much in the immediate politics of the particular team. Something Um, neutral, somebody neutral. Yeah, yeah, I think that might be a good idea. So all of the things that you just said are fascinating and makes a lot of sense. What's your prediction going out? I mean, a lot of people are moving into this virtual world for a lot of reasons. There's, there's pressures to do a blended uh, meeting structure, for example. We have this issue with respect to retention because the, the job market is just so gosh, gosh darn tight. So we don't want to lose anybody. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there is also the cost savings. You know, people don't have to be spending all this time in cars driving to and from. There's research by Gallup that says if you give people that, an option to be uh, virtual or at work or some flexibility in that, their engagement goes up. But if you mandate it, it goes down. So mm-hmm. there's all this pressure right now that says we have to do this blended thing going on. Is this a short term deal? Are we eventually going to get back to, I mean, let's say, pandemic aside and we're past all this. Do you predict it in the future that we will go back to mostly at work or is this virtual workspace, blended workspace, I should say, here to stay? Yeah, it's a question I love and I've been debating it for the past six months or so and trying to predict it. And six months ago, I was saying we're going to end up somewhere 70-30. So 30% of your time as a knowledge worker, you're going to be doing it virtually, and the other 75% you're going to be doing face-to-face. I've since, I've coached a number of companies at the executive level who have been struggling with this very issue. And what I hear uniformly, I mean, to a person from the executive team is, we got to get everybody back in place. 
we can't, I can't manage people virtually. And I think there's probably an echo of the old butt in the chair phenomenon going on there. Like, I think it's a lack of trust. And so in some ways, it would be good therapy for us all to let go of that and, and to start measuring productivity in other terms. But nonetheless, that's real. And, and I've heard that expressed over and over and over again. And so my hunch is that the pandemic aside, let's be clear, you said that, and let's be clear about that. Assuming we don't get a third wave or a ninth wave or something that forces us all to do something else, then I think the post-pandemic work world in a couple of years, let's say, it may take a longer than we think, but the post-pandemic work world will be virtually indistinguishable from the pre-pandemic world. There'll be changes at the margin, but mm. um, the, the, the amount, uh, you know, I think companies that had allowed it before will say, yeah, you can work from home, quote unquote, one day a week, two days a week. But I think that'll gradually get chipped away at. Here's why. So you have these two powerful forces. You've got, on the one hand, you gave the CFO back his budget or her budget for, uh, for travel and for office real estate, right? And what CFO ever wanted to say, here's the money again, right? When, it, when, <laughs> when he or she was able to take it back. So that's a powerful force to say these trends will continue. But an equally powerful force is imagine the salesperson who reports back to the head office, hey, I lost out on this job because somebody else the rival, the competition uh, went there face to face. And I did it virtually. Like you said, I lost that commission. I mm-hmm. lost that sale. You know, that happens three times and every salesperson is back in the field with their budget restored because you simply can't afford that you know, as a company. The competition's tough. And so I think those kind of more essential forces will start pushing the people to go back to the way, the way it was. And the amount of actual virtual work we do will gradually shrink and shrink. And I say that as a technophile, somebody who thinks we should all learn how to use video conferencing. This is great for the planet. It's great for time saving. There are real arguments for its efficiency and usefulness, but every virtual relationship degrades over time. That is a fact. We can talk for hours. I wrote a book about why that happens, but every virtual relationship degrades over time. Human business is always fundamentally about relationships. And if we're going to keep those relationships strong and create new ones and keep business flowing, we're going to have to meet face to face until we get better technology. And that's my one caveat in all this. When we can wander through virtual space in a way that feels like we're present, then the equations will change. But as long as it's just video conferencing, then the pressures will be enormous in the long run to go back to -to face-to-face. So give us a little thought around that. What would that be? I mean, what would the tech, do you have any sense about what that technology is where we, the tech, being in the technology feels like it's present? Yeah, I do. It's it's really interesting. I've had it demonstrated from a couple of companies that are doing work in this space. Uh, Right now, it's not ready yet. They would be angry at me for saying that, but it's, you still have to put on a thing that looks like a, you know, a giant helmet or something. It's, so it's a visor, basically, that allows you to feel like you're in a workspace. So this solves the proprioception problem. It solves the problem of being dissociated from the other person, not feeling like you're in the same space. And then you get the avatars of these other people, and you feel like you can sit in a conference room. It's surprisingly lifelike, mm-hmm. even though you recognize that they're avatars. 
you feel like you're sitting in a relatable space with them. And that changes the whole dynamic of a meeting. You do actually feel like you're meeting with them. So I think when that develops to the point where it's just a very delicate little set of glasses that you can hardly feel or see, and when the 3D virtuality of it gets so intense, so HD that it feels like rather than an avatar, I can actually see your expressions on your face and the constant changing of your position and whatnot. So I can actually read your body language in a way that I'm used to. And so when all of that develops a little bit, then I think we will be pretty content with that. And so much as I say to everybody, yeah, all virtual relationships degrade over time and it's good to be face-to-face and you need to have face-to-face meetings with long with people that you have business folks that you have long-term relationships with. I think in the future, there's a place for 100% virtual relationships and a lot more of that. So, we'll so based on the research you've had on that, how far out are we? to having that kind of technology? Well, you know, they say you always overestimate what you can do in technology in a year and underestimate what you can do in 10 years. So <laughs> I'm going to do that like everybody else and make that mistake. I'm going to say it's only a couple of years off, but uh, chances are it's a bit longer than that because it takes a while to for these patterns and habits to change. And of course, it'll be pricey to buy all the new gear and equip yeah. all the, the offices and all that, kind all that of sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Fascinating. So uh, as we kind of close off here, tell us briefly about your book and then also how can people connect to you aside from the book? So first things first, give us a little bit of synopsis about your book and then how do we connect with you? Sure. Thanks. In 2017, I was constantly getting asked, so because I talk to people about body language and storytelling all the time, this was, remember, face-to-face days. And I would say, hey, this is why body language is so important. And people would always raise their hand and say, but I never see my team. Some of them are in India, some of them are in Paris, and some of them are in California. What's body language there and in this virtual space? And I thought I'd better write about that. So this book is an exploration of how does human communication, but especially that all-important part of body language and human intent, how we decode each other's intent, how does that work in the virtual space? Mm-hmm. And I was expecting to find out that it works great, because as I say, I'm a technophile, and I was astonished to find how badly it worked and how much more misunderstanding there is when we try to communicate virtually, whether it's email or phone conferences, that's a virtual form of communication, even though we don't think of it that way. And then of course, in video conferencing, all of that was rather theoretical in 2018. Suddenly in March, 2020, it became very, very real. And and so I started getting a lot of questions about it. So it's a situation that does, we've all learned a lot about it in the last year and a half. Yeah. Uh, but as we've been talking, it's not as easy as it seems. So if you feel tired, if you feel stressed, if part of you hates to go back to work because of the commute, and part of you can't wait to go back to work because of the uh, getting back in the same space as other people, I feel you. I hear you. I've done the research. I know what it's like. To get in touch with me, it's our website's the best way, www.publicwords.com. Lots of free resources on there, including a free sample of the book and so on. So uh, I'd love to see you there. There's an, you can email me in, at the contact form and I'll get back to you within 24 hours if I'm here. Great. Nick, this has really been timely. And mm. just, I mean, the people, the clients, the conversations I'm having, this is something that I'm going to be sending around, uh, especially because it's, it's top of mind. It's everybody's talking about this. And I think your book is going to be really helpful. So thank you so much for your insights and your gestures. <laughs> Although <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, exactly. Stand back and let me see your hands. 
No, it was really it was really a lot of fun to get to know you and meet you. And, and thanks for your time on all this. A real pleasure, Dean. Great to meet you. And I hope someday we can meet in person, whether in Love Bend it. or in Boston. That sounds good. We'll go out and grab a beer or something over someplace in a good pub there in Boston. Uh, we've got lots of good IPAs here in Boston. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to The Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com.